Welcome to another episode of Mobile Homies. Throw up a funk, throw up the funk. You can hear me today. Very special. I will be reconnecting with my homie from way, 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 way back. Like way the fuck back. My homie Shingo 2. And there he is. Look at this. Let's get it going. Hey. What's up? How are you, man? I'm great. I'm I'm in Hawaii right now. I've been living here the last seven, eight years. Yeah. After. Sorry, man. Yeah. We have a call. We have a phone call. Hold on a okay. second. Hello? Hi, this is Alan calling from Comcast Xfinity. How are you doing today? Comcast. Do you know do you know I'm doing mobile homies right now with Shingo Two? You're doing what? I'm doing mobile homies right now with Shingo Two. Do you think could you do me a favor and never call me back ever again? No no no, we can help you out. No no. I, I don't need help. I just want to never be contacted again. Would that be all right? That's not, yeah, that's, that's a good idea, but, you know, you, you, you can get a help for your cost. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Got to go now. Got Shingo right here. Okay, see ya. He was persistent. Anyway. Yeah, he was trained. He was a trained yeah, professional right Yeah, there. you know that happens. My wife insists that we have a home phone, which is some oh, bullshit, in my opinion. Landline, yeah. A landline, right. So before we get into it, I, 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 wanna, I just want to – give you a proper introduction, you know. This is a guy who I have known probably for 25 years, would you say? Okay. Um, came out of the, the heyday of the Bay Area underground era movement centered around Telegraph Avenue, insofar as I know. Um, he has such a multifaceted career as not only a rapper in two different languages, as a musician, a visual artist, an activist, incredibly big heart, incredibly big mind, a lot of people know him through his early work and his collaborative spirit, you know, um, with, with so many artists, including Living Legends, Hieroglyphics, and then obviously, of course, New Javis. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend Shingo, too. Clap it up. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Absolutely, man. Thank you for the kind introduction. I, I don't think I've seen you. I don't think I've seen you or spoken to you in at least 10 years. Not really, but can I give you an introduction? Wow. Uh, I guess, yeah. No, well, especially in relation to me. Well, first of all, um, for the record, you are everything that you described about me and then some. And even looking back to that era of uh, hip hop, hip hop scene, in, you know, on in and around Telegraph and that whole era, you guys were the major league hitters, and we were like in AAA, you know. So mm. you guys are forever our idols and mentors from that era. Um, 
you know what I'm saying? Like scale-wise, just being prolific, releasing records, and you guys uh, set the blueprint for independent hip-hop movement, you know, um, mm. through the mid to late 90s especially, and that was like the biggest um, impact that we had as fans, you know, just listening to your records in the dorms and shout out to David Medulli, Gene Whitney, DJ Icewater. Yeah. Those guys really, you know, egged me on. And the first time I met you, you probably don't remember. So my good friends, um, you know, Gene and Dave Medulli, they held like a on-campus, um, like one of those career day things. It's not a career day. Uh, what is it when students come to the campus to experience what it's like? Mm -hmm. and it was kind of aimed at, I, I believe, a little bit of the local uh, kids, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it definitely had like a Asian American um, theme to the panel. It was you, Oliver Wang, and Jeff Chang sitting in a row. I don't remember that. Okay, yeah. I don't remember so, that, but okay, yeah. Yeah, so even though that was for the kids, you know, I was so intrigued that I just kind of crashed that scene, you know what I mean, in the mm -hmm. classroom. Mm -hmm. And then I remember one kid even challenged you to freestyle, and then you just killed it, you know, acapella style. Everyone was like, wow, you know. And then during the seminar, you had mentioned that you're half Japanese, and then your last name is Shimura. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't believe it. I didn't even know that. So after the class, I awkwardly went up to you and said, hey, you know, I'm a fan. I, I love music. I'm starting to write music myself. You know, even though I'm not a high school student. Right. And then you're nice enough to say, oh, you know what? Talk to my boy Toshi uh, in Japan. Oh, man. Yeah. So that's where I when I the next time I went to Japan, you know, I went to Shibuya by myself and went to Manhattan Records and there he was, Mr. Itagaki. And, rest uh, in peace rest in peace by the way, man. I heard he he, just, he he was a prolific beat maker um himself in the yeah. Japanese um hip hop scene. Yeah. And I ended up being good friends with him, you yeah. know, did a song or two with him. You know, but you know what? Because of it was because of your introduction, he took me under his wing immediately. Okay, let's hit all these clubs, and he introduced me to all these rappers, and that was my way in, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. That, you know, Mr. Tagaki and you, and that kind of exemplifies the spirit of hip hop and how it's borderless and how it's also instantaneous and how people connect. You know what I mean? That's amazing. Yeah, he was kind of a big brother you know, in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. Toshi. Like, I used to stay at his apartment. A couple times I stayed at his apartment. You know, it was like one of those really small Japanese yeah. one-room apartments in Tokyo. And we basically slept in the same room. You know what I mean? He had his bed, and then he would throw down a futon for me, you know? Like a dorm, basically, yeah. Yeah, and he was such a bachelor, bro. Like, he just had, it was just, like, dude stuff everywhere, like records and toys and right. food and everything. I'm, like, sleeping in this, like, you, you know, like, I felt like I was sleeping on something that was, like, the size of a Band-Aid. At least you had a spot. You know? That's right. Yeah, that's right. For many, many trips, you know, in the early days. Right. So, so, yeah, that's, it's a big especially deal. Especially to be, like, central in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you stay up late and then all you got to do is crash. And yeah. 
that was yeah. his uh, Airbnb. Yeah, man. I mean, and and you know that's something that that I I think that as I was was doing my research for this conversation, you know that that seems to be one of the things that really sets you apart is not only just your collaborative spirit, but the way that you've been able to bridge and provide provide a gateway for so many American rappers, particularly West Coast underground rappers from that era, gave them access or, or introduced them to Japanese resources and labels and, and musicians, et cetera, et cetera, and vice versa. You know what I mean? That seems to be kind of one of the hallmarks of your career is like this really collaborative spirit. And, you, you know, I, we know each other professionally. We're friends. I haven't seen you in a long time. I don't. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, our history basically starts with Telegraph Avenue in, in Berkeley. But, you know, I'd like to find out what got you to that point. Like, how did you arrive you know, being a Japanese native, how did you arrive in Berkeley? How did you arrive in the States? So my dad, you know, worked in a trade company. So I grew up in Tanzania, London. Mm -hmm. And in, if anything, I only spent a short amount of time in Japan. It was from fourth grade to eighth grade. Wow. And then, and then my family moved to Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And then I went to high school in Menlo Park. Where'd you go to high school? Menlo Atherton. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it was because of that. And then my oldest sister was going to UC Davis at the time. My parents were ready to move back to Japan. And then Cal just happened to be one of the schools that I got in the UC system. You know, they're like, you guys should live close to each other. You can't, you're not even allowed to go visit, you know, Southern California. Just stick together just in case and then just go to Cal. And that's how I arrived at yeah, UC Berkeley as an engineering student. Right. Wow. That's amazing. And at that time, I mean, what was that like? I mean, it, it's hard for people to know who weren't there what that scene was. Now, like now all these, all the alumni have become like household names in terms of like underground right. West Coast hip hop. But right. what was that like back then being in that era? Man, I mean, my eyes were peeled, you know what I mean? Because for, for somebody who moved to the States around age, you know, 15. And then I, in high school, I, I listened to Dell. I listened to Farside and kind of, you know, familiarized myself, but I never dreamt that I would meet, end up meeting those guys. Yeah. Just meeting Dell for the first time. And then mm. also being on Telegraph Avenue, you know, I quickly became friends with Mystic Journeyman. Right. You know, Corey was like the first guy that really, help me blossom as an artist you know? mm. yeah i have I have some stuff that i drew for people man mm -hmm. unsigned and hella broke yep broke, broke ass, ass summer, summer jam. jam yep so all of these you know so you did all this i remember all of yeah. this art you yeah, did all I, of I this art yeah. wow i didn't realize yes because i associate this whole kind of telegraph avenue Living Legends, Mystic Journeyman, Grouch, Hobo Jump. Did you come up with that Grouch logo? Yeah, I, I did that logo, and I did his first tape cover, too. Yes, okay. So yeah. I, I associate that whole era with these black and white drawings. You know what I mean? 
yeah. like hip hop in the park, unsigned and hella broke. Like all these flat, they were just black and white drawings. I had no idea that you did all of those. Well, I, I basically took over because, you know, Corey and Tommy, they already had the UHB thing going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I may, maybe I joined, I forgot, like issue number three or four, you know. So I was just a, you know, skinny Asian kid going to Cal, hanging out on Telegraph. And, mm -hmm. you know, just because I could draw, they're like, oh, you know, you guys should do this and that. And, and yeah, I just got kind of sucked into it as an artist at first. <laughs> So did you did you meet Mystic Journeyman before you met Dell? I mean, it was all around the same time. Okay, so let me rewind. Yeah, I went to school fall of 1993. Mm -hmm. So the moment I stepped into the dorm at Unit One, it was already hip hop celebration. You know? Yeah. I, I I happened to be on all guys floor, and two doors down, my friend Dave Maduli and Gene Whitney were in the same room. Yes. Shout to Dave and Gene. Yep. Yeah, so from their cassette deck, all you heard was Souls of Mischief. Right. You know what I mean? And then uh, mixed with that, all these other great hip-hop from East and West Coast, you know? So that was such a pivotal time that I went to school at fall of 93. Yeah. Cairo was blowing up. And then soon after, you saw the Mystic Journeymans and, you know, Living Legends. You had the Hobo Junction, Cytoplasms. Yeah. You had Fanatic, Planet Asia, Roscoe, all those guys just walking around every single day. And I became friends with all of them. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was lucky to be there, man. It, yeah. It was an amazing time, man. I mean, you know, just Telegraph Avenue because you had Amoeba was on Telegraph, Rasputin's was on Telegraph. The Leopold. Soul Sides office, Leopold's was still right off of Telegraph. The Soul Sides office, our office yeah. was three blocks away from Telegraph. So yeah. we would walk up and down, mm -hmm. you know, all the time. And, and that's where I met Grouch. I think that's probably where I met you, you know. Gene Whitney was a was an intern at Soul Sides at the time. Rodney DJ Icewater was an intern at Soul Sides at the time. You know, so we were right in the thick of it with, with the with everybody you know and it was just now obviously everybody like i said has gone on to become these household names in terms of you know underground hip-hop you know you said that earlier it's kind of funny you say in terms of because you know i've always i've always thought that you guys should be national billboard topping superstars in my mind mm -hmm. that's really interesting man yeah so so you so your introduction to the scene was as a was as a, a graphic artist basically i started this thing in 96 or 7 called empire 22 so i was yeah. selling t-shirts for a while you know just straight from the screen printing shop to telegraphs like literally selling it out of the box mm. and that, that was just that was the place to be you know yeah so then how did it transition into music for you I mean, it was a slow transition, you know, because being in the dorms, and mind you, I'm I'm already 18, 19, and never haven't recorded a song. Mm -hmm. But those guys, David and Gene, kind of egged me on to start rapping. Like, you know, it started from a freestyle battle. And yes. Then, you know, you get the competitive edge going, so you want to have some punchlines, you know, mm -hmm. you know, up your sleeve, and then that translated to writing, and I've always liked creative writing in high school, you know, as well as drawing. So that it just kind of came together a little bit, little by little. And then mm -hmm. I met this guy, Boss One. Yeah. Yeah, that brings a smile on everyone's face. He's the <laughs> most 
creative, <laughs> insane. He's a, he's a character. Yeah. He's a character. I love Boss yeah. One. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Everybody knows Boss One, and Boss yeah. One came from that same era as Dell. Right. And he was part of Cytoplasms, and he was the first one to really push me, okay, you need to record an album. Mm. So I my first album was in uh, Japanese, and he produced all of it on an SB12, 1200. Wow. And, and, you know, that combined with me. me what album was that? It's an old album called in Japanese it's called MC no Susume and we titled it Evolution of the MC. So it was like a cassette demo basically in Japanese that I had recorded and off of me meeting you and meeting Toshi in Japan and then I met Higo from Mary Joy Recordings. Mm -hmm. And it just kinda w went on from there, you know. Eventually, you know, I made an English uh, EP called Pearl Harbor talking about mm -hmm. racism and addressing issues of war and whatnot. And mm -hmm. then going through all the battle rap stages to underground, you know, hardcore stages, I eventually branched out and started doing more reggae or yeah. you know, stuff with New Job S and all that stuff. Look, let's talk about this Mary Joy era for, for a minute, because I, I know for at, at least for a lot of the alumni of like, you know, the Telegraph Avenue, late 90s, early mid 90s alumni, that association that you had with them provided a lot of opportunities mm -hmm. for like Mystic Journeyman. And, you know, you did a lot of singles with Mary Joy, right? A lot of albums as well. Yeah, I did. So if anything, I was kind of like a help helper behind the mm -hmm. scenes, if you will. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I did definitely uh bridge Higo with all these other artists but you know he was already super interested and eager to release all of that material in japan right with or without me you know what i'm saying i was basically the in-between to the to a lot of the business that went down yeah like translating lyrics and getting merce and you know all all of that kind of happened in a matter of few years but i mean yeah like i remember Mer like there were songs and albums with Merce, they, they came out via Mary Joy, Living Legends. Came, I mean, it was just really interesting that what was considered sort of a super DIY underground phenomenon in, in the just in the Bay Area at the time. And obviously, the Living Legends movement went on to, to became huge, you know. But at that time, it was very small. It was just it was interesting that this guy had this really intense passion for that, you know, in, in Japan to the point where, yes, I'm willing to put up money. I'm willing to start, a, to start the movement in Japan. I'm willing to, you know, stake it. I thought that was really a trip, you know, to watch and to, to see it blossom in, yeah. in that era, you know? Yeah. But, but I think in the background, um, People should know that in the 90s, you know, if, if you're if you're a hip hop artist, releasing a 12 inch vinyl was your way of getting your name out. Yeah, so we're all fans of that whole movement happening on the East Coast with Rockus and Fondalum. And yeah, we're just, you know, basically wannabes. You know, we want to be recognized and having our singles in sandbox. And, you know, mm -hmm. we want to be seen. So yeah. we were super indie. But, you know, here's Higo from Japan. But, you know, he, he started as an independent A&R basically in Japan, but he got, you know, hooked up with a bigger kind of parent company mm -hmm. called uh, Music Mind. 
mm-hmm. and, you know, so they had a lot of sister labels doing techno and I met Ken Yishi that way. So mm. yeah, it was a, it was a huge wide movement that, that wasn't contained to just one genre or one right. demographic. But, but what an amazing existence and experience for you at that time, I would think, you know, just sort of having this dual passport between Japanese hip hop and American hip hop. And both of these movements were kind of blooming at the time, you know, I mean, what was that like? Well, you know what, like, just like anything, when you're in the middle of it, you don't really think much about it because that's just the way things are. You feel like an athlete and you're just trying to do Mm -hmm. your thing. You know, there are a lot of interesting things going on in Japan at the time and also the West Coast. But as you said, as you mentioned, the West Coast uh, indie scene was kind of a separate bubble from everything that was going on in MTV and BET. Right. You know, you only had a handful of artists that got that national recognition. It was it was extremely indie. I mean, it was it was the indiest of indies, like cassette only. You know what I mean? Yeah, but also because the Bay Area never had that major label presence. Right. We yes. only had indie publications. We only had uh, KML and Wake Up Show, and that that was it. Yes. You know? I, I always say about the Bay Area at that time, we had the hustle. We just didn't have the muscle. That's mm-hmm. just sort of how it was. And that's why it was such a, an important and a big deal to have – you know, a company like, well, a person like yourself working alongside a company like Mary Joy that would act, that was actually making a serious investment in creating vinyl, making, you know, do, it's, it's kind of hard for people to kind of grasp that now, how important that was, you know? Yeah. But that was, you know, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of resources to kick down, you know, for, for something to get to get a very underground movement off the ground, you know, in another country, you know, it's a big deal. It's like it's something a lot of bands, labels, groups still struggle with today, right. you know. But at the same time, the reason that was uh, remotely sustainable was the fact that in Japan you did have a fertile ground of uh, spreading those seeds. You know, people were mm-hmm. thirsty for uh, indie hip hop in Japan. You know, if you remember. Yeah. Walking I around do. Shibuya, it was a status to just walk around with record bags. You know? Yeah. Like Shibuya was famously dubbed for being the place with most record stores per square mile or whatever. You know what I mean? At the time, my father was still alive. So I would go back to Japan probably twice a year, you know, and either from sometimes three times a year, whether from, you know, just visiting family for personal trips, whether I was on, you know, a music related trip. You know, I was also doing work with Manhattan Records at the time, which was still still right. in business. Yeah. Shibuya was like heaven for me. You know, it was like hip hop was at its peak. Everywhere you went, you saw dudes, you know, you, you remember this. Everywhere you went, you saw dudes wearing baggy jeans and Timberlands with with like dread extensions you know like dreadlock extensions you know what i mean everybody was dressed like boot camp click you know what i mean at that time yeah. i loved it it was fucking amazing and you know record bags though that was a and record bags yeah. yeah and the record stores were just the most amazing record stores i'd ever seen in my life you know just so comprehensive mm-hmm. walls and walls and walls of 
12 inches that you had never right. seen in your life. You right. know, it was just crazy. It was like a museum. It was. And I mean, you played a part in that, you know, in well, exposing those artists. I, I felt like I was a fly on the wall in both scenes. And then, and then meanwhile, all the while you're making your own albums. Mm -hmm. and you're recording and you're recording your own 12 inches right so you kind of had this dual career also where you are you have sort of one foot in the underground hip-hop world in america right and then you have another foot in the underground hip-hop world in japan that's true what was that i mean that that's very unique you know i, I can't think of another artist that's done that for me i think the one uh thing that i could uh, be proud of is the fact that I never mixed the two languages. You know, mm. when, when I when I started rapping and, and like I said, I definitely felt like I started late, later than everyone else. So I had I felt like mm -hmm. I had a lot of catch up. Mm. So when I recorded the album with Boss One, I made it a point I'm not gonna try to mix the two. I'm gonna do everything in Japanese. And then mm. he really encouraged me to kind of like find a topic for each beat. What does this What does this song sound like? And then mm -hmm. I was really you know good at researching and all that. And I was already curious with language and culture. So whenever I would uh, write a song, I would just go really deep into, into the history, you know? So, mm -hmm. so I just kind of did that song by song and album by album. So I only released like full Japanese pro projects and then eventually full English projects. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my staple. So I, I, I kind of went in between the two, but I had two separate careers until eventually you know my songs started kind of crossing over you know like 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 you know like new jobs you know that was a 12 inch that i recorded with a japanese producer never mm -hmm. got distribution in the states but the myspace and the youtube era kind of pushed it over back to the u.s i mean but that's so unique to have like sort of a dual career like a, a bilingual career you, you know where that kind of the two lanes exist separately from yeah. each other yeah you're recording japanese only albums for japan and english only albums for america it's hard for me to just get my head around that you know well, in certain you ways know, you know you of all people you know who's a master mc know very well that just because you're fluent in english doesn't make you a fluent rapper right mm, like you yeah to have practice in that vernacular and then slang and whatnot you know when you let me ask you this just as an aside these days, you, you know, what language do you think in? It's, it's equal, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm 45 now, but I've only lived in Japan for cumulative maybe 10 years. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For, the, for most of my life, I've been in the States and everywhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah, but you, you've had to function as a Japanese person in Japan. Oh, yeah. you, you know, My parents are both native Japanese, and I think it kind of came from them because they never allowed me and my sister to mix the languages in mm. the household you know they're very strict you know like if you speak japanese speak japanese you know <laughs> you mean you weren't allowed to speak japanglish or even when i speak with my bilingual friends mm -hmm. i switch in between the two languages without even thinking right but your parents but, 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 yeah but they they only wanted you to speak well you know, it's like table manners. They wanted to teach us proper Japanese. Yeah. Okay. Because of that, I, I was able to read and write on a professional level. I kept mm -hmm. it up so mm -hmm. that I could, you know, work as a professional in Japan as well.
That's interesting. So does it, when I, you know, I ask people who are bilingual this all the time, you know, like what language do you think in, you know, and, and because it's just interesting to me how the mind adapts to our life experiences, you know, or vice versa, you know. Right. I mean, I would like to ask that question to somebody who speaks more than two languages, you know, because mm -hmm. I feel like I'm very limited <laughs> in English mm -hmm. and Japanese. So mm -hmm. I feel my thoughts are kind of independent from uh, linguistics. You know, there, there's a circuit somewhere, but I'm constantly translating in my head. Okay, do I go English or do I go Japanese? But the thought is kind of up here. Yeah, it's interesting. And, then, and what determines the choice? Uh, the occasion, who I'm speaking to, or in terms of music, like, yeah, what the vibe is. And sometimes I have to cater to the request, you know. So the context in which you're... The context is everything, yeah. So obviously, if you're in Japan, you're going to, chances are, you're going to be thinking more in Japanese. True. Yeah. And, and, or, and vice versa in America. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like money, you know. I switch wallets when I go to Japan. I don't, I only have wallets that fit the yen bills, you know. Right. That's an interesting analogy. So here you are in the late 90s and the early 2000s releasing albums in both countries, you know, singles in both countries in right. two different in two different right. languages i, I think I, I i ran into you a lot in those days you know kind of the late 90s early 2000s i think you were going back and forth quite a bit mm -hmm. and um and i used to you know it was always on telegraph or it was always at some hip-hop event or something and I, and I was like what are you doing these days and you're like oh i'm working on this i'm working on that i'm you know and then i, I i'll never forget this man you told me this way back when and uh, it really gave me insight, I think, to who you were, you know, because I, I think it was a very competitive time, you know, quantum soul signs, very competitive with Hyro. Even if these people didn't feel this way about us, you know, like quantum, very competitive high, with Hyro. We were very competitive with, with living legends. We felt we felt that way. You know what I mean? Like we, we were all pushing each other, obviously. Yeah to be better and so when i would ask I, I would run into you occasionally i'm like you know what are you doing these days and i'm working on this and that and you would say things like you you, you would say things to me like however i can help you let me know we didn't say that that much back then because we were we were so competitive mm -hmm. maybe maybe the action was there and then you said something to me that I'll never forget, man. And, and, you know, as I was, as I look at your career, it makes a lot of sense. You, you, you're like, you know, I'll, I'll go wherever I can be of service. And that really struck me back then. That really struck me, you know, too short famously, famously said, <laughs> get in where you fit in. So that's, yeah. that's the motto. Yeah. I mean, and how has that shaped your life and career? I, obviously that, that thread is woven throughout your music. You've, you've helped so many artists along and collaborated with so many artists, but also as an activist, that, that thread is woven through that yeah. part of your yeah. life. I mean, yeah. how has that shaped your life? Would you say? Yeah, well, that's a very great uh, segue into that aspect of my career, but you know, all in all, like I said, I was, I was a fan of, culture, the scene, all the artists that I work with, you know what I mean? Because it wasn't just those aforementioned artists, you know, there are hundreds of great artists, you know, you yeah. saw all my friends were dope artists to me, great producers, mm -hmm. you know, Kirby, Kinetic Sons, you know, 
like all of those guys they're geniuses in my mind you know? yeah so, shot to kirby yeah yeah so mm -hmm. all of them all of them you know yeah. anybody who i forgot so yeah even gene he was a dope freestyle rapper you know he mowed people down on the radio freestyle like when he was in high school like he was so dope i did not know that yeah no he he did wow so he was killing everyone in the dorms too man so anyway anyway so me starting out i was a fan and of course i wanted to be my be an artist and i just loved the whole aspect of making your own covers going to the pressing plant i was like a sponge you know but also I really love the fact that you had to be independent and kind of the whole mystique about it. But then everything changed for me, like in the year 2000, I had to go to a mission in Bosnia mm -hmm. and that just kind of happened. Uh, you know, I was listening to the radio and, you know, hearing about the war in former Yugoslavia. And then mm -hmm. I hooked up with these people in Japan who are kind of sending kind of resources to Bosnia for a concert, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But I was like, yo, you know, I'm so intrigued by this. I, I want to go. And I, I practically forced myself into that mission and then, and then, and then paid for my flight just to mm -hmm. go out there and perform. So I, from the Bay, I flew to UK. I flew to Bosnia with Brian Eno, you know, the famous producer. Yeah. And I met Horace Andy there. And then I did a show at the, Pavarotti Center in a war-torn city of Mostar in Bosnia. And my eyes opened up then, you know. And even mm -hmm. though I was this no-name Asian guy from Cali just doing a hip-hop set, a lot of kids came up to me and said, yo, you know, like, we loved your set. And, you know, all respect you. They're like, out of anyone tonight, mm -hmm. we loved your set. And mm -hmm. we forgot about the fact that we were killing each other only a few years back. And... You know what I mean? Like hip hop is dope, you know? And and after that trip, you know, there's so many things that happened that was eye opening. Mm -hmm. And after that trip, I was like, you know what? Like I really have to use this platform and power of hip hop to kind of educate people, not just for myself, but for other people. So mm -hmm. that's when I started kind of like being more aggressive, giving interviews in Japan and just trying to open up a little more. And mm -hmm. also I started to, uh, write about bigger themes other than rapping uh mm -hmm. you know rapping about rapping basically which is still a sport great sport but mm -hmm. I, that's when i my my whole thing changed and i started to uh open up to all these uh issues that's really extraordinary i mean let, let's talk about that for a second because i think it, it explains a lot about your personality and your, your your character i mean how many people hear that there's a war going on and you're like i need to go there it's not really a common thing, you know, but it spoke to you. You get out to Bosnia, you're doing a concert in war-torn Bosnia, right? What about it was so eye-opening for you? Because it really resonated with me what they were doing with the little that they had. Mm. You know, this was a town that was shelled for two years straight mm. from surrounding areas. It looked like Rome. It looked like ancient Rome. But then there are kids still trying to stay creative, you know, because the young people had nothing to do with the war, but they mm -hmm. were still enlisted as soldiers and given weapons to kill each other. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the drummer that I hooked up with, he drove me around town and he was like, you know, giving me a tour guide of where there were 
fighting. <laughs> like, yeah, I was in a gun battle there, gun battle there. And then at the end of the tour, he told me that, you know what, like, during the war, I was like a robot. Like, I, I, I watched friends die, and I didn't even shed a tear. Mm. But then he was like, you know, but now that the war is over, I think I can cry again because I'm a human now, you know. Mm. And that really moved me, shook me to the core. And then my DJ, Narcisse Jr., he took me to uh, Dubrovnik, uh, which is a little bit of a drive down, bus drive down, uh, down, you know, from Mostar. And his studio was in an abandoned hospital. So <laughs> he still had the hospital bed in the sink, and then he had the God. DJ table. And... You know, even though that's crazy, it was really dope to me. You know, everything was dope. Yeah. I was like, and so that instantly connected me back to the scene and Telegraph and how everyone was doing a DIY and knowing that it was possible. I mean, that that makes Telegraph DIY look like motherfucking Green Street Studios or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. That makes a four track look like a uh, an SSL board, you know? Yeah. Wait. For real. For sure. Yeah. For that's real. amazing, man. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's kind of consistent with your history, though. I think, right? I mean, you grew up in all these different places, right? You're you're not a, you're you're not a, afraid to be an adventurer or an explorer at that yeah. point, you know? I mean, yeah, just thinking back, you know, like my formative years, like my really really formative years were in Tanzania. You know, I right. grew up in, in a household that was definitely well off because we were stationed from Japan. We had we didn't have to worry about nothing, mm -hmm. but just across the street, you saw poverty, people literally living in huts, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. and kids with bloated stomachs because they didn't have a, enough meals to eat. And how, how did that affect you seeing that as yeah, a that child? Yeah, that definitely impacted me from uh, yeah. early on because I would ask my mom, like, oh, why are they hungry when their stomachs are so full? You know, mm, yeah. I didn't know. And then right. my mom had to tell me, well, they actually don't have enough to eat, you know. Even the people that came to help us, you know, they weren't servants or nothing, but they're helpers. Mm -hmm. Like they cherished, you know, so much. Like one time my mom gave them furikake, you know, furikake, right? Of course. Yeah. 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 So the seasoning, like yeah. you know, the fact that they could put it on an ugari, which is their kind of, kind of like a cornmeal. Mm -hmm. And that just blew their minds, you know, little things like that, like that I would always remember, you know, so do you, do you think that seeing those things as a child inspired you to want to be of service, like you told me years later? I mean, is that what, what sparked these things in you? In retrospect, yes. You know, because okay. I definitely grew up seeing inequality and then knowing that I was of privilege, even as mm -hmm. a young child. And mm -hmm. that definitely made me feel some way and then also the mm -hmm. fact that it's not just about giving things you know like you really mm -hmm. can connect to people through uh being creative you know and 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 that really happened when i was in england and i started drawing a lot even though i got picked on a lot you know mm. and that was how i uh that was the icebreaker in what way were you picked on because you know because i'm i'm the only asian kid in the entire school but when i started drawing characters and caricatures and drawing i was passing out mazes for a long time i would just draw a maze and give, give it out mm -hmm. to people and that was that was what it took to befriend these kids so your your art again 
yeah becomes a bridge to acceptance right right so you would have a mean kid come up to you at a later time and said yo i really want this for my girlfriend would you draw me something <laughs> wow so i was like a lackey you know what i mean but right so okay so i'm not trying to make light of this shingo too right but so a bully comes up to you and he wants to kick your ass mm -hmm. and you're like here man take this hand-drawn maze <laughs> it wasn't like a currency exchange like that i would get picked on i would mm -hmm. fight back and then yeah. eventually we'll you know we'll kind of make peace and then yeah. i would be nice enough to offer my olive branch you know what i'm saying yes these are life lessons that we could all learn from don't get me wrong i would fight back i would yeah i'm not saying you didn't i'm not saying that the way you defended yourself was by drawing everybody mazes <laughs> i'm not that saying that funny though yeah i'm not <laughs> <laughs> like before the punch even connects you've already drawn a maze and you're handing it over yeah, yeah. yeah and you're tucking it yeah, yeah you're good, yeah. you're tucking it into his balled up fist here take this maze you know yeah. anyway sorry uh yeah but i get it and then and then you know and then obviously as you when, when you come to the bay area the, yes that's what's happening i mean you're doing all the fucking artwork for an entire mm -hmm. movement basically right and then so so then fast forward here you are in japan now and i think that's when i kind of lost touch with you i think was around the sort of er, sort of mid 2000s you know mm -hmm. i think when you were at that point from at, at least from my perspective you were doing the bulk of your work in japan and that's when i kind of lost touch with you and what were you doing in that period that whole like mid well, to is that is that around the time that you met new Javis? was it in that period well, i've always i i had always lived in the bay you know i lived in the bay from basically 89 to 2008. okay you know i moved up and down the east yeah. bay while i was there the whole time mm -hmm. but if you recall what happened and this is something that's probably not talked about much mm. when 9 11 happened you know, a tragedy, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then during, like during the aftermath, a lot of distributors folded or, or maybe not all the way, but that was like the death knell to indie hip hop. Really? Like, Land speed, TRC, like mm. a lot of funny things started happening right after nine 11. Okay. And, I mean, that's just my take on it, you know? Well, I, I know the economy tanked. And, and so it makes sense, you, you know, indie record anything is the first to go you know right. indie music anything is the first to go whenever the economy takes so yeah that makes sense but so, go ahead yeah that was definitely a tipping point and so the mary joy operation in the states kind of had to fold yeah and we we're all kind of left to fend for ourselves much like the corona uh situation now you know we mm -hmm. all had to fend mm -hmm. for ourselves man yeah and, and you're right that's right around when i met nuja vest like early 2000 and coming coming off from that tour in europe and yeah i was i was kind of feeling okay i'm up for anything you know and that's when he kind of hit me up when i was still living in el cerrito and mm -hmm. and then the next time i went to japan i linked up with him and he gave me a cassette tape and the rest is history yeah. so and and where where were the two of you in your careers at that time i mean what year are we talking about like oh three oh two 
2000. Okay. And where were the two of you in your careers at that time? Because this is, this is a very pivotal relationship, I think, for you. In, in a career full of great relationships that you've had, this is obviously a very pivotal relationship for you, you know. Yes. And for, for the, I would say for the both of you. So you meet in, two, in, in 2000. What were your careers like? What were your paths like at that moment? So as mentioned before, we were both in our infancies, mm. only like a few years into seriously trying to put out records, you know. Right. As I know from like the only interview that New Jabez did, he didn't start making beats until like, yeah, 97 or something like that, you know. Or, okay. So we're both really trying to figure our way out in, in this industry, you know what I mean? But also New Jabez also had the resources to have Guinness records right behind the hand records in Udagawacho and Shibuya. You mm -hmm. know, his dad was like an investor in that business. He, so, his father was an investor in? In, in Guinness records, a, a store that- Wow, owned. I, re yeah. I remember Guinness. It was in so, the same building. Yes. It was in the same building as Manhattan, well, it, wasn't it's, it? It's right behind it. It was right behind Manhattan. Yes, yeah. I remember. Okay, yeah, continue. I didn't know that. Nujabes had this, you know, in retrospect, a, a brilliant idea of owning a record shop, you know, working with rappers, releasing it under this hideout uh, recordings right. label, and then putting it out as if he had nothing to do with it, you know? <laughs> but he prominently showcased it on his walls, disguised as underground rap from the United States. So that was his whole thing, and that's, that, that was his, his whole formula that he invited me to do. It was strictly about, okay, let's put out 12 inches. At Guinness, and they yes. were being sold at Guinness. Right, right, so. Exclusively at Guinness, or? I wouldn't say, but prominently featured there because, right. yeah, he could afford to do that. And so what was that call like when you got the call? I mean, what was the conversation about? So initially it was just an email and then we met up mm. in Japan and he, he... Did you know who he was? I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, so we met up first time. He, he came in his, his car and then he just sat in his car, listened to some beats on the cassette. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, took him to a party that I was headed at. And then that was it, you know. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, cool, keep in touch. And, you know, and then maybe weeks or months passed and then I popped in the cassette. And then one of the beats really spoke to me. So I called him, called him up and that, that became our first record. Wow. Yeah. And which one was that? What record was that? Love Sick. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Love Sick. Yeah. Okay. That, oh, that was Love Sick. So he gave you a cassette of his beats in 2000. Yeah, something like that, yeah. You didn't listen to it for a while. Yeah, maybe a, it was it was a little bit, maybe a month or two, okay. I forgot, you know. And then during that time, he had already given the beat to Pace Rock from Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So Nujavis was like, well, too bad he already started playing <laughs> the beat. But, but yeah. I had a relationship with Pace leading okay. up to that. You know? I'd seen him in Cincinnati. I'd open up a show with him in Japan. Mm -hmm. He was the man, you know, he still is the man and he was mm -hmm. the man back then. So mm -hmm. when I contacted him and I also confirmed this with him a couple of years ago when we met up that, yeah, he, he had written a song, but he was just kind of cool enough to give it to me. Like, you know, he was like, yeah, whatever. That's really interesting. So this song that starts off 
this legendary collaboration from the two of you, from a legendary, now legendary producer, right? He get, he he gave the pace, and pace had already recorded that a, I'm a not song sure over. If he it. had recorded it, but he definitely wrote something to it. Yeah, it, it was his basically at yeah, that right. It was. And you call <laughs> and you call them up. Be like, hey man, I, I like this track, man. You think you can right. step off? You know. Well, <laughs> no, it was more like pleading to him and. He was cool enough to say, yeah, if you really want it, go ahead. Yeah. Now, Shingo, did you have to uh, uh, give him a maze for that? I gave him yeah. two, yeah. <laughs> but what what happened is I had given him a collab that mm. came out, and I saw it at Giddis, you know? He had remixed it. Like, Tortoise had remixed a song that we did together off of his Cool Motor album, and it was on vinyl, wow. and, you know? So it was all good, you know? I think... It was like a creative exchange, if anything, you know? Sure. So Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm not suggesting there was beef, Shingo. I'm just saying that, you know, it, it's just interesting that this, what, what would become this really monumental song was actually somebody that was intended for somebody else at some point. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. So that's the, that's the genesis. So that's the beginning. And how was that received initially? So kind of rewinding back to what we said like half an hour ago, like that mm. was the only metric to to uh, find out if people liked it, you know, mm. you release 12 inches and see how many right. represses you got, you know? <laughs> represses. Yeah. Represses were your, your analytics were your represses, yes. Yeah, like, you know, like recording 12 inches and releasing it was the only way to shout people out even, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like if 100%. I shouted you out, you would never know until you heard the record in your bedroom. Yes. It was a long, long way to, uh, yeah, record a message. So, so how many, so in so doing, how many units did you move of Lovesick? So, so I have no recollection of exactly how many. Yeah. But at the same time, that was kind of symbolic of our relationship because mm -hmm. he would tell me, yeah, it's doing well. Okay, mm. now we're repressing okay, now we're going to print a t-shirt with your lyrics. And I'll be like, okay, hold on. <laughs> hold on, Nijemes. What's going on here? And right. He will wire me some money. And, you know, so that was the ping pong match that we had constantly, you know. But I was always down for it, you know what I mean? Because, yeah, collaboratively, like, I really enjoyed that relationship. What do you mean the ping pong match? What do you mean by that? Oh, no, no. In, in terms of, like, yeah, what's going on with... He was very mysterious about the business side of things, you know? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. It's not like he sent me an Excel sheet of what was happening. Right. And do, do you think that was just indicative of the times, or was that just his personality? Just his personality, for sure, yeah. Was it because he was just not a detail-oriented dude in that respect, or...? I, I think a mixture of everything. He was very private, mysterious. Yeah. At the same time, if you prodded him... Mm -hmm. he would he would listen to you that kind of thing yeah because i mean this is a guy that was producing 12 which is putting them up on the wall at the and and was not taking credit for any of them right i mean that too and then yeah like i said he only gave one interview his entire life so he why do you think why do you think that is well i think he just had certain criteria that he set for himself you mm -hmm. know because, like I said, when we embarked on this journey together, he was pretty clear that he's never going to press CD, ever. 
So he kind of reneged on that and started putting out compilations and, you know, I was fine with it. I went along with it. But initially he was like, I'm only going to do vinyl. I'm only going to do blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he maintained certain standards along the way. Like when he performed, for example, during his later years, he would only play vinyl records. Even for his live shows, he would only go off vinyl and stuff like that, you know? So, yeah. A lot of boundaries. He kept a lot of boundaries. A lot of personal and business boundaries he had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know guys like that, you know, to a degree, I have been that way, you know, throughout my career also. I know what it's like, though, to work with people that have boundaries that to me may not be that important, but it's important, but it's important to them. Right. So, So you respect them. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. And I'm sure vice versa. Did that make it difficult to work with at times? Well, like I said, I wouldn't single him out, but Mm. (laughs) you know, during that era as a whole, Mm -hmm. we had to be our own managers and own negotiators and our own accountants and everything, right? As an artist and as a rapper, you kind of have to stand up for yourself sometimes and ask first, okay, what is the guarantee? Am I gonna get points on this? What happened with so-and-so? Now, in this day and age, you got to ask, okay, what's happening with digital rights, publishing, right. blah, 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 right? Even in the scope of releasing 12-inch vinyls, a lot of things were discussed and some things were kind of left, un- mm-hmm. you know, un- undiscussed. So, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think in, also in a lot of creative partnerships, there's sometimes there's a degree of ambiguity. You know what I mean? And um, it, it just depends on the personalities involved. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it is my personality. I go out of my way to let people know ahead yeah. of time what exactly you're getting. And I mm-hmm. send them everything. Well, I, and, and I think that your career, your relationships, your longevity uh, is, is based on that, 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 that level of clarity. Mm-hmm. But um, so, so you having that disposition him having his, did that ever create problems for you guys down the road? Yeah, again, I'm not going to single him out, but of course, this can be like a whole Netflix documentary, I swear to God. Like, him and his relationship with artists and the label and then, you know, eventually his death, like, was mm-hmm. really dramatic and also traumatic as well, you know? He, he went from releasing 12 inches to, you know, putting out CDs and the whole hip-hop scene back then now the cd shops started piggybacking piggybacking off of his success you know Mm -hmm. the hmvs and whatnot who also put out vinyl but they were really aggressive in marketing the cds and that's Mm -hmm. how uh this whole in japan i'm gonna throw up big ass air quotes it's it's called jazzy hip-hop yes it was was birthed in japan and i i don't like that term because it's Mm -hmm. either jazz or it's not jazz you know, mm-hmm. I'm all for putting jazz in hip hop and mm-hmm. putting jazz samples in hip hop beats, but this whole category of jazzy hip hop mm-hmm. was birthed in Japan and they marketed that, you know, and still, they still do. Yeah. 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 They, they just went into hyperdrive. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, yeah, you know what I mean? That became a million, million dollar industry. And now, now, when you say that, the, the stores piggybacked off of his idea. Is that what you're saying? Or, or his, I his, say idea, his, but his strategy? No, just stylistically, just putting uh, out 
what Haidat was doing. That was a blueprint I see. everybody mm. else followed, you know? That kind of became the blueprint for what people call lo-fi now. But right. in Japan, it was considered this jazzy hip-hop, and they also had coined this term named B-metal. B mm -hmm. is beautiful and metal is short for melody. So mm. everywhere you go to record store, you saw this word B-metal, <laughs> yeah. which means beautiful melody hip-hop, you know? Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed just traveling back and forth to Japan and, and being involved in the record scene, they had more fucking categories than, I, right. than we ever knew. You know, they had hip-hop. They would have hip hop when you go to the bins and the record store subdivided into so many different mm -hmm. categories that as Americans, we'd be like, oh, I thought that was just hip hop. Maybe we had a few subdivisions like gangster or West Coast right. or G Funk or yeah. West Coast Underground or or East Coast Underground or Miami. You know? mm -hmm. But they had so many categories. So that doesn't surprise me, you know, when 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 I hear you say that. Yeah. So you after that you saw you saw a bunch of labels kind of imitating that formula or yeah. should I say inspired by Hideout. So we started that... getting a lot of compilations and albums, mm -hmm. even albums looking exact same down to the font. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Uh, you got a lot of uh, copycats around. And again, and, and... I don't want to sound negative for yeah. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to sound yeah. like that old head, but that's exactly what happened. But I mean, that happens when when a music becomes successful and catches on, right? Oh, no or, doubt, or, no doubt about it. Yeah. You know? But to the trained ear of hip hop mm -hmm. fans, you know what I'm saying? Like you listen to yeah. the song and you listen to the drums, and then you can identify in a nanosecond mm -hmm. whether it came from a hip hop producer right. or a non hip hop producer. You know? Ah, so, okay. Yeah. So it felt it felt inauthentic to you when that when that was happening to my ear yes yeah. from the time that you guys did lovesick to the time that becomes a phenomenon that other labels and record stores are copying how many years went by before that happened before it caught on like that i would say three or four years that's incredibly fast when samurai yeah. champalu came out right yes okay so right after 9 11 i did lovesick part two yes and around when samurai champalu came out he requested that we do lovesick part three Mm. But Lovesick Part 3 went straight to CD, mm. you know? That didn't come out on vinyl until he, after he passed. So Part 3 was the signal of the CD era for Hideout Recordings. What changed his, his outlook about CDs? I mean, I would assume that it was just the business opportunities because, like I said, mm. it became a million-dollar thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Distributors were mm -hmm. cutting checks in order of millions, you know? And I keep saying that word because uh, it's true, and then it kind of shook everyone up, you know what I'm saying? And then the artists never saw that money. When, when you say the artists, who who are you speaking of? Like the artists that recorded? Like the featured rappers, yeah. Uh, but the label saw the money, obviously. Well, they were definitely handling it, you know, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of legal issues behind the back. So we were just on the sidelines watching all that thing go down, and between yeah. hideout and the distributors is that what you're talking yeah. about you know that was a mm -hmm. kind of a climate that was happening in japan at the time and mm -hmm. you know i'm sure that was a lot of stress for Nujabes as well did that put pressure on your relationship with him well like i said i've maintained the same uh disposition 
mm-hmm. throughout <laughs> my career, you know. So mm-hmm. I would basically ask what needed to be asked, but you know, it's not like I could really change anything. Do you think that the movement was just so young? I mean, because three years is an incredibly short period of time between lovesick one, two, three, samurai shampoo. I mean, for all these things to take off, and then suddenly the movement is on fire and everybody's copying it, and there's millions of dollars involved. Three years is a really short period of time, you know? Yeah. Did you get the sense that people were just overwhelmed and couldn't handle it? Like they just, the, the success and, and the, the speed at which things were moving at was just, just kind of bowled everybody over? Well, that was just one branch of hip hop going on at the time, yeah? The early yeah. 2000s. Mm-hmm. There was that whole mainstream of, you know, like U.S. mainstream music that was popping off. And then right. this was just a small little stream that mm-hmm. came out, but also originated in Japan. Right. So, so all these stores had a big say in what was to happen. They really ushered in that era of slanging, <laughs> slanging CDs, if you will. You know. I, I think that's important to note, man, is that, that, that this subgenre of hip-hop, uh, a lot of people attribute to having its origins of this subgenre anyway Mm -hmm. in japan you know what we know is like you know chill hip-hop or lo-fi or you know i mean and a lot of people give you guys credit as the originators of that you know Um, i personally don't think that we are at all we're participants and bystanders of the culture if mm -hmm. it weren't for you know tribe called quest or p-rock or any of these guys, you know, mm-hmm. we wouldn't even have jazz infused anything, you know, so. Yeah. That is true. That is true. And, and even, and if you, let me, let me just sort of give you an analogy though. Like if you spoke to a lot of pro- New York producers from that era, they might say, well, we owe a lot of our success to Jimmy McGriff or Jimmy Smith. Or, or and a lot of the guys that we sampled, you know, Groove Holmes, James Brown, da 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 da. So we give. So I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I think for a lot of the fans whose introduction to hip hop is lo-fi, right? They would right. they would they would point to yourself. They would point to New Javes, you know, as the originators. Right. I um, totally understand because the narrative is that of aesthetics. In mm-hmm. Samurai Champloo that combined hip-hop and anime was yes. very pivotal in terms mm-hmm. of quality and execution. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I definitely feel lucky to be part of that. And also, mm-hmm. you know, I'll stop playing devil's advocate for a minute. And mm-hmm. if, I, if I had to give full credit to Nujaves and his taste of records, is that, you know, because of his position being a record store owner, he was a prolific record collector. Right. So... He had a really, really uh, vast record collection that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like that kind of branched a little bit further than your average American hip hop producer. Maybe he listened to a little bit more Bossa Nova or right. jazz fusion or whatever they call it back then, or even mm-hmm. Japanese underground jazz records. Whatever mm-hmm. records he could get his hands on, he, mm-hmm. you know, just like any producer, you know, like a lot of 90s. Producers came from dollar bargain bins or records mm-hmm. that were at Goodwill or, 
you know, that was a certain sound. And his sound came from these, like, a little bit more abstract uh, subgenres of jazz. And then he kind of created a little bit more mellower uh, style of hip hop. And, and, you know, when you talk about, so, so here, here's another thing that also kind of set this movement apart, and in my opinion, set this movement on fire, right, was when you talk about, talk about Samurai Shampoo, right, this marriage of your sound, the Nujabez sound, with anime. Anime has always had a very close relationship with hip hop. It's particularly underground hip hop, you know, in, in my experience and in my opinion, you see a lot of crossover in the fans between underground hip hop and anime, right? But here you have an unmistakable, undeniable marriage. It's not an association. It's an actual melding of, of the two. How did that come about? So I only found this out like last year, maybe when I had a proper email conversation with the director, Shinjiro Watanabe, because I never really talked to him in person, only mm. through other people. But he told me that he was a fan of both of our music mm. long before he, he uh, started that series. So he probably went to Guinness and bought our records and bought my Japanese material as well. Right. So Shinichiro Watanabe was a hip-hop fan, and he was the first to basically tap New Jabez to do, do the um, soundtrack, and including uh, other, other artists like Force of Nature and those guys. Mimi mm -hmm. did the theme song, uh, the ending theme, and I just happened to be the opening theme guy. You know? That's amazing, and I need to know about this conversation. I mean, tell me he, he reaches out to Nujabes and yourself simultaneously, or no, how did that no. come about? So the reason I never spoken to Mr. Watanabe is because Nujabes dealt with uh, mm. him. And I was still living in the States, you know, I mean, I've been living in the States the whole time, but I was still living in the Bay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was just communicating to Nujabes from my studio and, and that's mm -hmm. how it came about. He sent me a beat. I did a, Japanese theme song, it got rejected. He sent me an English version. Uh, he sent me the instrumental, another instrumental, and that became what what's called Battle Cry. Wow. Okay. So previously, so what we know is Battle Cry now was actually preceded by another song that who rejected that? The producers rejected the, that the, the part is still a little bit murky, but mm. the instrumental became this song called Horizon on one mm. of his albums. So it's a really, really upbeat, happy piano tune. Yeah. And then I basically wrote a Japanese uh, samurai song to that kind of, you know, talking about the same things, you know, yeah. kind of how you, you know, wield a sword and this and that. Mm. And I liked it, but it was kind of more kind of family friendly type vibe. It wasn't like the ominous vibe that Battle Cry gave. Yeah, that J Japanese version of Horizon is still out there somewhere. But wow. I don't know. I, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was the director. Maybe it was the producer. Maybe it was Nujabes. But he kind of came back to us and said, can you just record an English version instead? And I was miffed at first because I liked that first version so much. But yeah. I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. You know, and then I just knocked it out real quick. And I did two verses. And, of course, with the TV version, they only used the first verse. And that, that was it. But I mean, you talk about fucking milestones. Little did we know, honestly. Right. Know, because that was a late night 
Fuji television anime, even mm-hmm. though it was a, you know, really, really famous producer who already done Cowboy Bebop. And I was lucky enough to be a part of it, but I didn't really expect much to go beyond the late night TV in Japan, you know? And then only like a year later or less than that, Cartoon Network picked it up and yeah. And that was it. Yeah. What was that reception like, you know, in that in that moment when when I would be completely honest and the reception was very slow. It's not like I all of a sudden got a lot of texts from my friends and nothing happened. Just slowly through the MySpace era, people started listening to Love Sick and Battle Crime and they started connecting the dots and all the other great rappers. I would be missed to not mention these guys. All the great, mm-hmm. great, great rappers that New Javis worked with. Funky mm-hmm. DL, Substantial. Substantial. Apani, the Fly MC, you know, people started to connect the dots. I was like the only outspoken Japanese person that ever worked with him, you know, Mm. besides Verbal from Mm -hmm. Inflo that went under the name uh, L Universe. Yeah, Psystar too, somebody commented. Of course, Psystar. Yeah, I mean, I I had uh, Booty Brown from the far side on on the last Mobile Homies. And, you know, they talked about when the, when the second Farside album dropped that was completely produced by Dilla at that time, you know. But Dilla was not really known. Did this Lab Cabin or what? The Lab Cabin, yeah. yeah. But Dilla was not Dilla at that time. Right. And what we now think of as a fucking legendary moment in hip-hop, you know, whole album, you know, produ- whole Farside album produced right. by Dilla. yeah. He said when it came out, label hated it. You know, they didn't hate it, but they didn't support it. The people's reception was relatively lukewarm. It's not till years later right. that, oh shit, that was a Dylan produced album before. Right. You, you know what I mean? Thankfully, it didn't take that long for Samurai Shampoo, you know, to, to, to do its thing. But it's just amazing how the movement caught fire after that. You're talking, like I said, I mean, you're talking about a period of three or four years where you're marrying hip-hop, jazz, America, Japan, anime, da-da-da, da-da-da, on and on and on. And it's just sort of like this sort of perfect storm of imperfect ingredients. And it and it just sort of existed on so many different levels. Right. You know? Was there anything that you started to take note of as these things were happening? Well, I mean, even to this day, you know, um, anime is, is, a, is, is a very uh, niche market. At the same time, it's a humongous niche market. I don't know if those two things cancel each other out, but mm. whenever me and DJ Aswater go to these anime conventions, we're just blown away that you got tens of thousands of people who appreciate you know u.s comics japanese anime video games they Mm -hmm. cosplay every single day like switch costumes Mm -hmm. every day for the four days you know Mm -hmm. it's like a super bowl for them yeah so it's like strength in numbers you know and and it applies to culture as well i think the hip-hop ethos has kind of alive by that whole anime music crossover they, they mm-hmm. still really appreciate the culture and the feedback's been 
awesome, you know. But if it weren't for the internet, obviously, you know, like that that type of hybrid wouldn't have been sustainable. I don't think. Media and without the internet, I don't. You know, and imagine if it had only stayed on twelve inch. You know what I'm saying? It's right. Without television, without Netflix,、right. without MySpace, without the the you know the music media that you got, the CD, the、mm-hmm. the you know, it doesn't happen as at least not as quickly. Yeah, you know, Cartoon Network. Yeah, sure, Adult Swim. So you had all these mediums coming into play, and then obviously the genius of Nujabes and you guys as a collaborative team. You know what I mean? The the, the actual quote unquote product. It's extraordinary if you think about it. All these factors that had to come together to create this success.、Sure. Totally true. And then even the U.S. version—that's like a whole nother production where you get the voice actors and、yeah. you know, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and, I mean, it's a movement that definitely was bigger than the sum of its parts at the、right. time. So, you know, the other interesting thing is, you know, when. Like I said, I mean, you and I kind of lost touch in that period. You know, I would say, like throughout. Saw、so、you t- in Brooklyn one time playing at the Brooklyn Bowl. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You also gave me a phone shout for a song called "One People." I asked you, and you yeah. accepted. Yeah, but I mean, I I don't know that we kept up with each other、no. in that time period. You know, so like you were doing all these things that、mm-hmm. probably in the past. I would have known about, you know, or I would have been like following, you know,、mm-hmm. but because of, largely a lot of that stuff was happening, you know, in Japan with a Japanese producer right, and right. on Japanese TV, and you, you know, you you like I said, I mean, this was such a special relationship between you and Nujabes. I mean, how many songs did you guys go on to record together? I mean, not many. I would say maybe around ten or twelve, you know. Yeah, it's not like we have super troves of unreleased material, you know. Is there unreleased material? No, because I was very—I mean, I have a lot of beats that he gave me that I never did anything with because I was very selective with what I rapped on, and that was the dynamic that we had. I, I wouldn't really, you know, just、uh, accept any beat that he sent me. I, I'm sure you're like that too. So, so. That was sort of your creative process. Would he he's, he'd give you a bunch of beats and you'd be like,、hmm, right? I like this one and that one, but not that one. You know? Yeah, I'm sure ninety percent of rappers are like that, but yeah, know, that's how it happened. But I mean, still twelve songs. I mean, that's an album's worth of material. Yeah. For two guys that are not in a group, that's quite a bit of collaboration between an MC and a producer. Yeah. Over a three-year period. I mean, that's four-year period. That's right.、Mm-hmm. I mean. Well, I maybe worked with him over the course of ten years, from two thousand to two thousand ten, when he passed away. From the time Love Sick One drops to the end of that ten-year period, how had the relationship transformed? I mean, like I said, his side was very tumultuous, I would say, because because of the whole wave of CDs coming and him having to worry about so many little things.、Mm-hmm. You know, I, but like I said, I was in my own bubble, just. Making moves and recording, and I never really changed my stance with him. I would always challenge him to, yeah, make beats, and I would also encourage him all the time, like, "Hey, don't worry about these, you know, other copycats, and just be you." And I think his answer to that was to kind of go back to the roots and incorporate a lot of live instrumentation.、Mm-hmm. So he started learning how to play the flute, and then he got with a producer named Uyama Hiroto, which、mm-hmm. who I'm 
great friends with. We recorded a few joints. His uncle was a professional jazz musician, and he's well-versed in, like, five instruments. Uyama became his right-hand man, and then I started to see a lot of transformation in his production, you know, mm -hmm. to the point of my liking, for sure. We're all, you know, really constantly encouraging him to just keep pushing the envelope, at, but at the same time, just, you know, go back to go back to the basics and just make good music. At the time when a lot of people started copying you guys' style, was that irritating to you? Was that annoying? I mean, were you like, oh, God, this is so blatant, you know, or what, what, what were your... I think that was more on him than me. I just thought it was amusing, if anything. But, uh, but again, it comes with the territory. So mm -hmm. if anything, yeah, imitation is the you know, highest, high, highest form of uh, flattery. Is that what they say? Yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? So, and it's hip hop. We imitated people. So yeah. we just happened to be the, you know, the tables were turned a little bit. So mm -hmm. you can't complain about that, you know? Yeah. So I, I never had like any kind of a, you know, negative uh, reaction to that, but I also took it as an opportunity that, yeah, you have to keep growing as an artist, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, it forces you to keep going. It forces you to keep... And in the meantime, you know, uh, you, you're still recording your own stuff separately, mm -hmm. obviously. I mean, you're, you're still recording your albums, your mixtapes, your singles. What were you focused on in that time period? Um, for me, it was really the same. You know, I took it upon myself to learn music. I invented a machine called the fader board which incorporated musical scales yeah fader actions mm -hmm. and then i was i was in a jazz improv trio called cosmic renaissance mm -hmm. so i toured with that for a while uh with david boyce samir gupta you know jazz giants if you will you know so that yeah. really and i was on the you know analog synth playing the arp and cutting it with a fader and yeah i wasn't rapping for like two years when I, while I was doing that, you know? But it really mm. kept me going and really learning about music in, on a deeper level. Why did you stop rapping during that period? Oh, because like I said, I was way more into mixing and dubbing and mm. tinkering with instruments and uh, tape delays and just taking Fender Rose apart, putting it back together. And, you know, I, because I was just so curious, like I, I need to create this texture. I'm just tired of sampling. I just, wanted to go back to the instruments at the time. What year was that, would you say? Oh, just, that, like I said, early 2000s, you know? I think a lot of people involved in hip hop at that time started to take that approach. Like you mm -hmm. kind of saw like in the mid 2000s, producers, rappers starting to kind of walk away, myself included, starting to kind of walk away from sampling as a medium, Right. you know? And, and I felt the same way. It was like, I can't grow if I continue to do the same things over and over again. And it sounds like Nujabes felt the same way as well, you know, like. I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah so we're all in this journey together. You know, also in that period. So as we get into like the late 2000s, you know, you're branching out. You're learning, you're, you're learning new languages, so to speak, musically. I think the world, it was changed. Hip hop as far as the world of hip hop was changing immensely. Were you still going back and forth to Japan as much? Were you touring? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was constant because I kept releasing Japanese albums, promoting that, putting mm -hmm. a band together. And, you know, it was, it was the same, you know, yeah. Who was the label at that time? Oh, Mary Joy still. 
Still married, Joy. Okay. So that's been a long, that was a long relationship. Oh, for sure. Yeah, in a way, it's still going. You know, I probably owe Higo a couple more albums verbally, you know, at this point, but I was never signed to them. It was, it was like a best friend thing, you know, whenever I had an album, I would give it to him and he would release it. So it was a handshake, a handshake arrangement. Oh, for sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he, he was somebody who would, you know, always be upfront and transparent. So I've never had issues with him. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, you know, like, like I said, I mean, and then I guess about five years ago, I started to see you, your name, you know, as, as a tour, obviously I'm a touring artist. And about five years ago, I started to see your name on mm-hmm. American on the schedule at the venues that I was playing, you know, or I'd mm-hmm. see, you know, I'd open up the, the weeklies and I'm like, oh, wow, Shingo's touring again in the States. Right. You know, because that, that was new for me to see you on the schedule like that. Yeah, that was new for me. Yeah. So that so, definitely, yeah, came from New Job as passing away and people wanted to hear the music again. And yeah, I think around 2000, gosh, I don't know, maybe 13, 14, we started throwing these smaller scale shows in LA when mm-hmm. I was living at the time. Yeah, Delicious Vinyls, we had an in-store and then we did a lyric theater and then went to, you know, Sunset and then just... Yeah. Came- Growing bigger and bigger. It was like the field of dreams, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's uh, like, I want to talk about that. But before we get into that, I, you know, so, so a lot of people, again, that was such a pivotal and important in a career of full of pivotal and important collaborative moments of yours. Obviously, this, like we said at the top of this conversation, this was obviously a huge one. You know, I don't, I don't know that that can be understated, man. And and you, you know, so so when he passes in two thousand ten, I mean, how did you take that? You know, I mean, what was going through your mind at that point? Again, this is a whole Netflix movie <laughs> worth of information, but yeah, it was difficult, and I definitely immediately right after I definitely felt a big burden on my shoulders to first of all relay that information to the rest of the world Mm. i had to talk to the family and you know there's a lot of drama happening in and around Mm -hmm. the label Mm -hmm. what to do with the music what to do with all the unreleased music like i was just ready to just give it out for free you know what i mean but but it was it was like unraveling a triple knot you know like it was it was really hard how did you navigate that like with the benefit of you know of time and distance now from i mean we're 11 years removed you know i mean how did you navigate that moment well again you know it's just uh keeping a healthy distance from the drama and just keeping it all about the music and the fans that's always been my mo mm-hmm. so whether releasing the material to eventually me moving to hawaii and putting together an awesome band called the chihus you know who are so well versed in their instruments and it's like a whole nother level of you know live shows it's it's really about the music and even though to us it's almost like doing a musical at this point it's like the lion king you know like to do a new job tribute from start to end is like two hours we can go non-stop you know what i'm saying like even even within those 12 songs like each of the musicians taking solos and doing breakdowns and yeah a little bit it's like that's like a full show man what was there at that moment, you know, in 2010? I mean, because, I mean, I, I guess if, God forbid, if someone that I collaborated with 
a producer that I collaborated with, if something tragic like that were to happen unexpectedly, I don't know that it's on me to get in there and try to unravel everything. I don't know that I would take that on, you know, to, to try to unravel everything and make sense of all the business and the emotions and the relationships. How did you find yourself in that position? Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, in retrospect, fate really brought us together, especially on record. Our bond was probably stronger on record than outside of the studio, to be mm -hmm. honest. But mm -hmm. I always kept it real with him, you know? Like, whenever mm -hmm. we met, I would just give him my opinions straight mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And I saw his evolution and also his responsibility growing by the year. I'm sure it was mm -hmm. a lot of pressure for him. You know what I mean? Like, I just happened to be caught in the midst of it all because, like I said, I was the only Japanese artist that had worked with him because, like I said, Verbal is my man, too, but he was un working under a pseudonym, so he was never, like, an outspoken torchbearer for New Jamez, mm -hmm. you know, outside of him being Verbal, but L Universe was a pseudonym. So, you know, by default, all I'm saying, all of this to say, by default, I was, like, the only Japanese person working yeah. with him. That's how I had that responsibility of uh, communicating um, to the Japanese audience, really, and the U.S. audience at the same time. You know, and that's something personal. Like all the other brothers that I spoke of, you know, Saiz, El Universe, um, I'm sorry, Funky DL, Substantial, they all did a wonderful job paying tribute to him mm -hmm. as an artist as well. But mm -hmm. naturally, you know, because I could speak Japanese, I was like the in-between for a lot of the communication that happened. Right. And, and emotionally, how was that for you? I mean, just did it take a toll on you to be in that position like that? I mean, between us, because I can be honest with you, you know, it was really more anger than anything, you know. Mm. And, yeah, it's anger at him, anger at myself, and it definitely took a while for me to get over it. Again, you know, music is where we go to kind of invest and encapsulate all of those emotions. So even if it was done previous to his passing or after his passing, I just really tried my best to keep it in the music as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. what, when was the last time you had spoken to him before he passed? So, <laughs> so this is a long story. Are you ready for this? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. so um, I might have, you know, said this in other interviews, but like this is late. 2009 now right so mm -hmm. i'm living in los angeles and also in a town called covina it's like 30 minutes east of downtown that's where i found my spot shout to the and cove there are a lot of you know covina west covina people out out there yeah yeah but um i had performed this show at citrus college which was which was literally down the street from where i live and at that show this 19 year old kid named Jeff Resurrection had come to my show. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I talked to him during that show, but maybe, you know, maybe a year later or something, this is late 2009, his girlfriend messages me that he was basically dying of cancer, you know? And I visited him with my man Cave and visited him on his bedside. He was already bedridden and at home. So I held his hand and performed a couple of songs with him. Wow. And I got the whole far side to sign a record for him. You know what I'm saying? You know, and then one of the things was that Jeff's favorite song was Love Sick Part 3. Mm. And 
if you could believe it at the time that wasn't even part of my repertoire like i hadn't i didn't have that song memorized because I, me and my dj's go-to was perform lovesick one and two done mm -hmm. move on mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. so i had to kind of relearn lovesick part three for him and that was what prompted me to write june and said yo like do you even have the instrumental for this song because that was like a like i said it had gone straight to cd we didn't have the vinyl and then so we had a lot of back and forth regarding that yeah this is where it gets deep because little did i know at that time he wasn't even in the studio he was he was out of the studio he was living back at his home so this whole time i'm exchanging him like yo where's the instrumental blah blah, blah. like and then january of like 2010 jeff unfortunately passes and then mm -hmm. i write new Jeffs again like yo you remember that fan um he passed away and i got to perform part three at his funeral this and that and then he wrote me back. wow you, you, yeah, you, and then you, he brought me back all well, my condolences to him then i was like yo i'm gonna come over you know to your studio i don't care if i have to sleep at the studio let's finish the rest of these songs because at mm. the time we had a, we had mutually agreed that we we're gonna do three more four mm. five and six you know mm. so that's that was a really love love sick four five and six yeah you got, so, okay so love sick is a series we ended at four five and six so right. we had three more to go but it was yeah. already being worked upon and that's wait a minute can, can i can i can i stop you right there you you, you performed part three at this kid's funeral yeah wow i did yeah. okay yeah Sorry, continue. Okay, go ahead. I had kind of developed a relationship with him. I'd gone to his house several mm -hmm. times before he passed, and you know what I mean? Right after that, you know, I I dedicated part three again to him, recorded yeah. with the live band, everything else, and yeah. That was the last conversation that I had with him. Like, yo, I'm going to come over and finish the rest of the songs. But then yeah. he really didn't write back to me. And then he ended up passing away, I think, end of february but nobody knew that he had passed for like a month or maybe three weeks mm. and that's when i found out that i had been calling him even and then didn't know that he had passed away so that's kind of how it went down chronologically at least okay and then but prior to that point when you were calling him up talking about continuing lovesick when was had you guys been in consistent communication prior to that just on and off and then okay he had relocated his studio from tokyo to kamakura like maybe 2008 or something like that so mm -hmm. in, in 2009 over the mm -hmm. summer i had gone to his studio and yeah we talked about music and mm -hmm. and yeah mm -hmm. that's when i was really trying to push him like yo don't worry about uh even releasing music just you have a nice studio here just jam every night and see what comes out of it so that was the last direct conversation that i had with him and then mm -hmm. that jeff thing happened over the mm -hmm. new years and then i, I kind of lost contact with him i'm sure the family had their own reasons as to why they would not announce you know mm -hmm. that he had passed but i mean how did that make you feel when you found out a month later you know you were one of his closest collaborators or, or one of your longest one of his longest standing collaborators you know i mean what came up for you I remember exactly where I was, and I got the phone call, and I think I spoke cool. to the manager mm -hmm. directly. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it was a complete shock and disbelief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, like I said, there are a lot of things that I can't even talk about right now, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But mm 
immediately right after that conversation it was like okay how do we get this word out and also mm -hmm. what are you going to do about the music and mm -hmm. that's also when the manager told me okay part four and part five were kind of decided and part six he had found a song title loves a grand finale on his cell phone so right. i went over yes. and to shibuya and listened to that track even though it's a sampled loop you know what i'm saying it was still titled mm -hmm. that so that's when me and weyama kind of got back in the studio and finished everything at his studio or, yeah i mean the, the legendary cell phone songs right i mean the 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 songs that were posthumously pulled off of his cell phone that, that you guys then recorded and that that became mm -hmm. that was four five and six right rest in peace to Nujabes, obviously i mean it seems like a complicated situation anytime somebody passes unexpectedly it's it's it becomes complicated you know because nobody's prepared for it emotionally nobody's prepared for it uh logistically you know and but uh, yeah i mean j just from what you're saying and from what you're not saying it sounds like it was a very uh complicated situation that somehow moving forward you found yourself in the middle of being this conduit between his memory and the and the and like you said the triple knot you know that needed yeah. to be undone his, his legacy basically yeah yeah right you know and right. I, I mean i can't i mean how long did it take for you to sort of undo that knot you know or are you still undoing that knot yeah i i think yeah it's still going yeah <laughs> and even 2020 was supposed to be a huge 10-year anniversary you know our band was in its like what fourth or fifth year of doing a full u.s tour yeah and we had to cut it short because of covid and a lot of, a lot of things are yeah still unresolved and unanswered you know so mm -hmm. it's one of these things it's like like a lifelong saga that well I, I think a lot of this speaks to your character though right because like i just said i mean god forbid something happens to you know a producer colleague cohort of mine i don't necessarily to be honest feel like it's my place to step in and you, you know connect all the dots for people but i think yes because of your proximity to him because you know you're the only japanese artist that he worked with that was i let's call let's just say qualified to do so but i think also it's because who you are you know and i think it's also because you've always at any point you could have recused yourself you could have been like "Fuck this this is not my place you know but i don't think that's who you are that's not consistent with the guy that saw these children in distress in tanzania that saw an opportunity to help all these other artists on telegraph avenue by lending your talents that's that's consistent with the guy that told me personally what can i help you with i'm going to go wherever wherever i can be of service it's consistent with the guy that relates to the DIY, help yourself, help each other. I'm gonna fly to fucking Bosnia in the middle of a war and perform, you know, and, and see where I can be of service there. That to me, it, it, it speaks to your character. You know, you don't have to do any of that shit, you know, but I, I think that the fact that you did makes total sense to me. Wow, I, I appreciate that. Certainly appreciate that. 
but you know tom you're the king of diy yourself and <laughs> how we kicked off this conversation you hooked me up to tap yeah in. if it weren't if it weren't for you there might be no new job based collab i swear to god you never know. okay well i come on man that's kind of a stretch and i i think it's that not. i would it's I, absolutely I think, not i'm telling no, you no no i'm telling i you. think I think the, the the point that I'm trying to make is this goes beyond just DYI. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is um, it, it it just this is just how you are wired. You, you know, in my opinion, I mean, this is just a guy who really thrives off collaboration. It seems like you know you have this wealth of interests that you're not afraid to explore or expand on. You know, whether it's your music, art, activism, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said in in the way that you have made it somewhat of, of a mission to keep that memory and that legacy of the music that you guys did together to make that a focus for yourself and your mm -hmm. career moving yeah. forward. Was that a, when did that become a conscious decision? Well, honestly, just years of getting feedback from, I don't even want to call them fans, but, you know, from the audience, you know what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. people that come to our tribute shows are the generation that grew up watching Samurai Champloo, watching reruns mm -hmm. in late hours when they were like seven or eight, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those kids are, you know, have taken that music and, really appreciated it on a really deep level deep honest pure level so i don't mm -hmm. see the need to divert from what that originally mm -hmm. was created for without intention you know i think that's where it is and you know i understand i'm being interviewed right here but you know you're you guys are the ones that laid those ethos down you know what i mean like just watching you know soul size or DJ Shadow, Laterix, you know what I'm saying? Those those were like the, and all the hustle that Hobo Junction, Hyro, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, I think we all share the same spirit. I don't think I'm any special. Well, you know, I, I think what, what the two of you created is, is very special. I think that what the two of you created, it, it's affected so many people in, in so many ways, you know? And I mean, why do you think that is? Because, you know, you mention, uh, uh, if you mention Samurai Shampoo to people, or you talk about lovesick to people, or New Jabez to people, I mean, some people fucking are brought to tears. You, you know what I mean? When you when you talk about these songs and these projects and that kind of era and that move, why? What is it about that? What is it about the music that you guys made together separately he himself that has affected people so deeply to this day and it continues to grow why is that well first of all it's champlu by the way mm -hmm. champlu means it's an okinawan uh, word for like mixing things it's kind mm -hmm. of like sampling so it's a champlu is type of a dish that, that you can eat when you go to okinawa the spirit of hip-hop is reflected in the title samurai champlu to answer your question, well, like you had mentioned, you know, it's like these kids watching an anime as a full package is no different from us looking at a Wu-Tang record, 
you know, absorbing every single detail on the cover and the music video, those are just ingrained in us forever. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're fans of Wu-Tang, Hyro, you know, forever. And I think I just happen to be very, very fortunate that that happened to some of, some of these kids uh, watching those animes or listening to our records. And yeah, having that kind of a physicality um, to our presence. But the other thing also that makes it so extraordinary is, like I said, I mean, I lost touch with you for a while. And then I started seeing your names on flyers. I started seeing your names on venue calendars around 50, you know, 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. Then I started to fucking notice that those venues started getting bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and bigger and double dates and triple dates yeah. in certain yeah. cities. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, is that the shingle that I know? And people were like, yeah. And I was like, that's fucking incredible. And this is what's so extraordinary. This was happening. Yeah. And, and, and this was based on the tribute show that you guys were doing, but it was 10 years, it was eight, nine years after his passing that this started to really fucking catch on. Mm -hmm. How yeah. and why? How and why? In your, in your estimation, how and why was that happening? Yeah, so to specifically zero in on that phenomenon, you know, I have mm -hmm. to give a shout out to Tachi from Delicious Vinyl in LA. He saw the potential mm -hmm. and he kickstarted those shows in the first few years. And then we enlisted mm -hmm. Peter Agustin and he took it to a whole nother stratosphere. He was the one that really uh, took us to the next level as far as booking shows all across the US, you know, because mm -hmm. before that we could only string together like four or five six mm -hmm. you know but he was the one mm -hmm. that kind of put us on the road like do 20 30 shows you know so and then also can't forget about my band you know the chi who's like that started small it started from me dj and a sax player to a full-on full band with a drummer bass guitar and they're all like i said just geniuses on their in their own right my brother dayhan who's on the drums he, he even has this thing called Dilla tribute with the Dehan Ensemble. He breaks down the samples of each song and does an amazing mm -hmm. show with singers. And these guys are just musical, I don't know, virtuosos. And they speak keys and scales on a whole different level than I could ever understand or hope to understand. So that was the musical musicality of it. But last but not least, it was really the audience that really pushed it over the edge. And they were so open-minded that they really didn't care whether the DJ played a record or it started with a guitar solo or piano solo. You know what I mean? Like they're, they were there for it. And I appreciate that so much. Like nobody ever complained, yo, that wasn't what it sounded like on the record. Like every time we ventured off into free jazz or, you know, did a whole number or remixed old school song, like everyone was there for it. And it was, it really felt like I was, I was in the audience, you know, in the 90s, mm -hmm. it was so hype. It's just, it's just such a privilege and honor to be on stage and everybody knows the words. You feel like you're walking on the yeah. house. You know, I'm sure you know that feeling. And especially, Tom, you have a live band set up that I've seen many times. And, you know, it's just like, it's like magic, you know? But I mean, you're, you're talking about a career that's, you know, maybe, especially for your younger fans, maybe they know you through the Nujabes collabs, right? But you're really talking about a 25-year career here in music, you know, 
more or less, you know, a 20 plus year career in music. And it's really extraordinary. And I love these stories where you see guys that and men and women who started their career and then they don't start selling out shows until 15 years later. And the career takes all these really unpredictable, strange twists and turns, you know, but because of hard work and the goodwill, in your case, a lot of goodwill from the artist on, on, on the artist's behalf, it really starts to take off, you know? And mm -hmm. so here you are now in your forties, you know, as I am, you know, but here you are in your forties and, your career's never been at a higher point, you know? And I think that it's really inspiring to see, you know, because there's there's no one way to do it. And I think that's one thing that we discovered here on Mobile Homies with everybody that I've ever talked to. And there's it's just no one way to do it. Do you think that it's the spirit of the music that the two of you did together that in these tribute shows allows you to go on these musical excursions and the fans tolerate it or enjoy it or support it? Is it, is it because that core spirit? Yeah. I mean, no doubt, you know, like it, of course it starts from the music. It starts mm -hmm. from the records that he chose to sample is the mm -hmm. spirit in those sample songs. You know, when hip hop artists sample songs, it's not just for, the melody you're sampling, the spirit of the recording that took place in that studio with that special engineer and special vibe of everything, you know, and then legality aside, you know, we respect samples. We respect it so much that we want to play music over it, you know? Yes. So I think yes. it has kind of carried over to us as a band reinterpreting those scales and samples that he chose to pick. And we're just kind of painting over his canvas just to you know put it back in the live dynamic and improv dynamic you just make the song like four-dimensional you know even right and, yeah and you know it just it just comes back full circle i would say you know it's, it's awesome it's it's so versatile and so flexible and you can do a lot more than with just uh, playing a record and at the same mm -hmm. time my dj is incredible too so like you can switch on on the drop of a dime and i, and I love that well, I think the other thing that's also benefited holistically that's how, how you've been able to benefit also is like now lo-fi is kind of a thing. Now, the past three, four years, lo-fi is a thing. And a lot of pe people associate you guys as being right. like the pioneers of lo-fi, right? And so no the movement kind of caught up with what you guys were doing. You know what I'm saying? And um, mm -hmm. so, again another one of these perfect storms you know what i mean that 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 happened all of a sudden and it, it, the culmination of all this goodwill and hard work and fan right. appreciation right. And it's really amazing man you almost have to look at it as kind of a spiritual thing you know really i mean there's i, I don't know that there's another way to really explain it you know because it's so unconventional the way that this whole thing happened mm -hmm. that's my that's my opinion i mean would you share that opinion in in the way that it all has sort of culminated to, to date yeah i agree i agree like i said a lot of things had to have come full circle and uh, mm -hmm. what i was getting at is not many people in japan even understand what lo-fi is because they're like oh are they sampling us now you know as far as anime and putting it together i, I read one in interesting article 
it was some random think piece that I, you know, that I read. I can't remember where it was, but it was kind of about how American kids are really into nostalgia, and also the fact that consumed all of the American nostalgia. Now they they're reaching overseas for it. So I think mm. <laughs> the whole lo-fi aesthetic is not about the latest anime. You know what I mean? It's more、mm-hmm. like the throwback anime combined with the throwback '90s. Hip hop sound that they probably didn't grow up with, but、mm. it still makes them feel something authentic、mm-hmm. and genuine. You know, it's, it's、yeah. like throwback fashion. There's nothing fake about that. You appreciate、mm-hmm. the texture and the style and how you know how people combine colors and concepts. It's it's still beautiful. So as long as you have that connection to that aesthetic and the balance of shape, color, and sound, you know that that is that is all you. That's all yours. Is that how you explain, like people just now discovering your music, just now discovering? Because you recorded these songs that you're, you're that you're paying tribute to years ago, decade a decade ago. Like, is that what you would would attribute right, right.、Mm-hmm. to the movement actually growing right now? Like me trying to be objective as much as possible. We we still are, and we we're very much like. Trying to do something, and and I think that vibe is still in the record. You know, we might sound awkward here and there, but you still catch the vibe that we are striving to achieve a sound, and I think that translates to the live aspect of the show too. I know COVID interrupted everything, obviously, but I mean, how have you been keeping yourself busy? And I mean, wh- where do you plan to pick up? Because we are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, me and the band did a live show like in February. It was、mm-hmm. socially distanced, but it was a big venue and it was awesome. It was a local show here in Hawaii.、Mm-hmm. So you know, eventually, it has to it has to move on somehow. Yeah,、mm-hmm. but me personally, I, I've stayed really, really, really busy. You know, just creative. I make clothes and I have a creative partner and we make soaps and all sorts of stuff that started in、mm-hmm. quarantine. So yeah, it's been great, man. That's awesome, man. So you know, I just want to say, I mean, th- this has been really enlightening and inspiring for me. Just to know and see where the source of your creativity and your dedication comes from, you know, as it seems to be from a love of obviously a love of art, a love of music, but a love of collaboration and a love of service. And it's really inspiring for me to see. I mean, I've known you for many years, but we've never had. An in-depth conversation like this, and I certainly didn't know、uh, your history as it relates to, you, you know, Nujabes and all the other things that you've been doing from like, you know, late two thousands on, man. And so I, I'm, I'm really honored in, in that I was able to have this time and this this opportunity to speak to you about all that, man. It's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Thank you for even interviewing me and hooking me hooking me up once again.、Uh-huh. So I want to say thank you for doing this with me, man, and I'm and I'm glad to see that you're you're safe and you're healthy and you're still staying creative in this weird kind of era that we're in. And I, and I really appreciate this, man. I really do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you. And I and I hope that when this is over, we we can hang once again and get down on some music, also. Yeah, for sure. Everybody, my friend, great Shingo too. Give it up on mobile homies. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, my brother. I love you, man. Take care of yourself, man. Okay. Yeah, definitely hit me up. Anyways, yeah, anytime. Okay, man. Shingo too, everybody. Clap it up.
Yo, thank you for listening to Mobile Homies. Make sure you subscribe and hit me with a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you catch your podcasts. For more content, hit up lyricsborn.com. Love y'all. Uh.